is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman on the menu for today's show, The War in Ukraine. President Biden heading to Brussels next week to meet with NATO allies to uh, handle the Russia and the war there in Ukraine. The leaders of Poland, Slovenia and the Czech Republic have all traveled to Kiev to show support for the country as it tries to fight off growing Russian attacks. Now, those attacks have damaged an apartment house and other buildings in the capital. We'll go in-depth into the war after another round of peace talks ends with no ceasefire. More and more people are leaving Ukraine to escape the war. We talked to one woman who fled from the hard-hit port city of Mariupol and now cannot get in touch with some friends and family. And a local doctor flew to Ukraine to help rescue special needs orphans. We'll hear from him about his remarkable trip. New study warns of an emerging terror threat has to do with anger in certain men over the inability to form relationships with women. Pfizer looking to get approval for a fourth vaccine shot for older people. We'll look into whether that's actually needed. And big trial starts and looks into whether mRNA vaccines are going to work to stop HIV. We start uh, with the war in Ukraine. CBS News reporter Steve Futterman is with us again from the uh, Polish-Ukrainian border. Uh, Steve, thanks for being with us. So, uh, President, let's start with President Biden, who is expected next week to uh, fly to meet with NATO allies in Brussels. What is that just a symbolic measure to show unity? To some degree. I mean, they're going to talk about some specifics. But yes, I mean, I think all the NATO leaders want to come together and express support and have that group picture showing that they do support Ukraine. They do support President Zelensky. One of the big questions is, will he come here to Poland, maybe meet with the Polish leaders? Uh, Right now, it's just a Brussels meeting. Uh, We don't expect him, uh, obviously, to venture into Ukraine. Would Zelensky maybe venture out and be part of this? We just don't know. A lot of things probably uh, have been worked out already that we just don't know. But there are a number of possibilities. But this is going to be a show of unity, which is obviously very important for the NATO countries to show Russia that they are still unified. They may have some disagreements, some small disagreements here and there. But basically, they support Ukraine and its efforts to fight off Russia. We have the other show of unity that we mentioned, the other prime ministers from some of these yeah. neighboring countries coming over. Not exactly a you know, 100% safe thing to do for them, but, but they went and, and, and they wanted to go. Yeah, that that was quite remarkable. I mean, you have a country that's at war and they took a a train. I don't know how many hours that train trip took, but they are in Kiev as far as we know right now. The three prime ministers from Poland, from the Czech Republic and from Slovenia meeting with Zelensky. Again, very much uh, very clear in their comments. They want this visual show of unity. They feel the optics are very important for the world to see. And they're also going to be giving him some uh, financial support coming up with an aid package as well. Steve, we haven't talked for a couple of days now about the refugee issue, which uh, you've been covering for a while now. Uh, And in total, it's like, what, about two and a half million people from Ukraine have now left that country. and, And many of them, most of them, I guess, in Poland still. Yeah. Well, today it it jumped over the three million threshold for the total number of refugees who have left Ukraine. And by the way, that number is not even close to being the final number. We expected to go to four, probably five million, maybe even more. But of that of that three million, around one point eight 
have entered Poland. Doesn't mean they're all here right now. Many of them have been dispersed to other countries. They've gone to see friends and relatives who they're staying with. But of, of, when we're talking about what border do you cross, it's primarily the Polish border. And now the last 24 hours, some Polish officials have indicated that, yes, we may be reaching the breaking point. We're hearing reports of some small towns, border towns, towns near the border that have just run out of space. Not talking about the big cities like Krakow or Warsaw, but uh, it's, it's now reaching a point where for the first time you're beginning to hear some whispers of, gee, how many more can we handle? And if, if like I mentioned, a couple more million people come across the border, it's very likely more than another million will come across the border into Poland. President Zelensky with the video link into Congress tomorrow. Obviously, he'll probably mention the no-fly zone again, which he's been pushing for. But do you think the Polish jet conversation um, gets gets back started? He can call for Congress to, to do something more about that? He would like those jets. He wants those MiG fighters. Now, those MiG fighters, you know, people may wonder, why would you want MiG jets? Those are those old Russian jets. They're not really that good. Well, that's what the Ukraine pilots are trained to fly. Now, we should point out that the Polish version of the MiGs are very updated MiGs, and the the Ukraine pilots would probably have to be trained a bit more to fly these particular ones. But that's the best they can hope for right now. Not sure what's going to be done with that. Again, the key thing for the for Poland, for the NATO countries, they do not want to escalate this war. That's why Poland doesn't want to give it to Ukraine directly. And that's why the U.S. right now so far has deferred accepting these planes from Poland and then transferring it to the Ukraine control. Steve Futterman there, CBS News, the Poland-Ukraine border. Steve, thanks. Nearly three million people have left Ukraine since the start of the war. And we just heard Steve Futterman say that, you know, in, in the next few days, we may find out that that number is going to be significantly higher. And all of these people are leaving behind friends and family. Mila is from the port city of Mariupol, which has been under heavy Russian attack. She managed to escape the bombardment and is now in Spain. Mila is with us now. Mila, thanks for joining us. Uh, when did you leave your city and what were the circumstances there at the time you left? Thank you for having me. So, um, yeah, my name is Mila and my home city is uh, besieged uh, city Mariupol, which is uh, uh, is uh, surrounded by uh, Russian forces uh, uh, for more than, I guess, uh, 15 days. Yes, sir. Uh, so, uh, I am lucky, I guess, so I don't know how to say it, because uh, um, for the first time with my family, we decided to travel abroad together, and uh, uh, we, we went for Spain to Spain for uh, six days, and uh, on the last day before our flight, uh, um, the previous day before our flight back, uh, the war has started. So now we are here. And I'm here with my family, or at least part of the family. And I don't know, I'm very grateful for universe because I don't have uh, this experience and my parents don't have this experience right now, for example, which my grandma is experiencing. Like, uh, um, I have a grandmother and we couldn't, uh, we couldn't able, uh, sorry, we couldn't uh, connect to her since 2nd of March, yes. And you still haven't been able to to speak with her? No, and uh, um, it's really uh, like there is a, uh, in this city, it's a total disaster because uh, there is no uh, 
electricity, no uh, gas, no heating. So in Mariupol right now, uh, in night uh, temperature can reach, uh, I know only Celsius, uh, like uh, seven, min, minus seven degrees and Celsius, sorry. Yeah, it's cold. No, it's, it's very, cold. very yeah, it's cold, very especially, cold. you know, yeah. if yeah. you don't have windows because of the blasts or, you know, no heat, no electricity. It's... Yep. It's it's terrible. Ela, does your grandmother live alone, or or does she have uh, a husband or others with her? No, unfortunately, uh, she lives alone, and uh, my parents were gone only like for a week. So uh, at this time, it was okay. And uh, yes, uh, uh, as I know, she has some water and little food supplies, but like there is no gas to cook food. Uh, there is no uh, electricity to charge your phone. And even if it would be uh, uh, Russian bombarded all um, like uh, um, uh, all some electronic stuff, so there is no even mobile coverage in the whole city, and the whole city is like half million of people. How old is your grandmother, by the way? She's eighty, and uh, she was born in her forty-first years, also under some bombs uh, from Nazis, and now. She's experiencing like basically the same, but uh, Russians turned out to be that kind of people, you know, Russian forces at least. You must be so incredibly worried about he- her. Is the hope just that, you know, she's got neighbors, she's, she's got friends, or that some aid may be getting into the city? And we've we've seen that maybe a little bit is getting through, but but again, not not a lot, not as much as we would hope or not enough people getting out. And I guess if you try and get in touch with, with anybody else, you know, you said there's, there's, there's no cell connection. You can communicate with people in other parts of, of Ukraine, but you can't get a signal into where, um, where she is. Yeah, that's true. Like we only can communicate with people who are out of, of Mariupol because, uh, yeah, if you see someone uh, is online, then you understand that he or she is luckily they escaped this hell. And today it was like 5,000 of cars, finally, because all these days there, there were really almost no people living in Mariupol because it was impossible due to um, constant fire. You're uh, in Spain, you mentioned, and, and how many family members uh, are with you now in Spain? Oh, it's uh, six of us, and it's uh, really... Uh, uh, Surprising for me because, uh, as I said, we never traveled with my uncle or aunt and with my cousin, and now we're all together. And it's like my aunt uh, and the, it's her mother who is my grand uh, grandma. So uh, my sister or <laughs> my mother and my aunt, uh, she they are sisters. So right now we are figuring out uh, figuring out uh, the ways to get our grandma out of uh, this hell. <laughs> What do you think those ways can be? I mean, I imagine this is like a all-out family kind of meeting and just trying to figure out, get in touch with anybody you can at any um, point that you can, yeah? Yeah, like, uh, I also would hope if, uh, like, uh, maybe Mariupol government would uh, do some official evacuation, but unfortunately, it's been, like, 15 days, but uh, there there was no communi- uh, no official uh, evacuation or no humanitarian help whatsoever yeah and it's uh, really uh, like uh, very sudden and sad to me 
As you uh, mentioned, mm-hmm. Mila, uh, you and your family were intending just for a vacation, and you weren't yeah. certainly uh, uh, intending to, nor did you have, I guess, the money or, or equipment, clearly, for a long stay. Do you have a, a plan now on on what all you guys are going to do in Spain? Do you think you're going to stay there? Do you mm-hmm. have another place you intend to, to move to? Or really, first of all, I love this country. It's uh, so, such a warm country. And also, I'm uh, on the last day before war, uh, you know, um, I'm always remembering who, who I met on the last day before war. And also, it was some people from USA who were traveling here. So, um, from Georgia, I guess, yes. <laughs> so now... Uh, Thanks God, like world is full of kind and great people, and uh, uh, the whole world is uh, uniting right now to help Ukraine and to help uh, us, uh, to help Ukrainian people. So, like first week, we lived in a, a local woman apartment. She just gave us and uh, for free. Second week, uh, we lived uh, in a hotel uh, which uh, municipal government gave us, and now uh, we're living in a hotel which. Uh, uh, were given was given to us by a Red Cross organization, and also like there are a lot of volunteers. And even though we are not in a big city, where we were we went for a vacation to Barcelona, and now we are in the Red de Mar. And uh, yes, it's uh, like near um, sea, and you know at least uh, you can go and uh, meditate for for ten minutes or for one hour. And just let it go because uh, all this news and like I don't know if my house exists anymore because um, yeah, some say this district of mine in my city in Mariupol uh, like uh, there is nothing left <laughs> because of constant fire so it's uh, but I don't care about house you know I just care about my grandma right now. Hey, Mila what, what, what do you uh, how old are you by the way? I'm 21. 21. Uh, and do you have, uh, in Ukraine, did you have an occupation? Were you a student? What was your situation there? Yes, I had my totally fine life. You know, uh, I was a student. I was, uh, and I am studying computer science. It's my last semester. And I hope it will, I will finish it somehow. I don't know how. But yes, like, you know, Kiev is a, a great European city. And uh, mm, Basically, I've been to a lot of countries in Europe and uh, uh, last, I don't know, last year or last two years, I like Kiev the most <laughs> because we have great restaurants. We have, uh, at least we had some great places to hang out. And uh, I always uh, show Kiev for, to my foreign friends uh, who come to the capital of Ukraine or who come to visit Ukraine. So, yes. And I'm a student of computer science. And you'll think you'll have these places again, that, that your country is going to get through this in the end? You know, uh, the longer I'm sitting here, the longer, uh, the more I understand that uh, this conflict maybe will not end uh, like in, in two weeks or in one month. Um, it's, uh, but, but you know, I'm... How to say? I don't know. Uh, I don't think it will end soon, really, unfortunately. And and the emotional strain on you and your family in Spain, uh, compounded by your concern uh, about your grandmother, who you still can't reach, but the, the, the strain emotionally must be enormous. 
Yes, you know, uh, every time we try to find little hope that uh, like endure endures our, I don't know, so to say, well be well being, but uh, um, like every time little hope shatters. <laughs> And uh, we are left with nothing, but we, we still have a hope for our own grandmother and we still will try to connect tomorrow with other people. And yes, I will just pray to God, you know, praying uh, to God has become a huge part of my life right now. <laughs> Mila, thank you for talking to us. Uh, our hopes are with you for your grandma and we, we hope that we can stay in touch and we wish you all the best. That's Mila there, um, was from Mariupol on the family vacation and now staying in Spain and uh, looking for grandma. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. With Ukraine being torn apart by war, those who needed the most help can often find themselves left behind. That's where humanitarian workers, that's where they step in. One of them is Dr. John Rodarte. He is a pediatrician at Huntington Hospital in Pasadena and recently traveled to Ukraine to rescue two dozen special needs orphans. Dr. Rodarte is back in Pasadena now and is here to help tell us about this trip. Doctor, thanks for, for joining us. So uh, what made you do this and how difficult was it to organize? Uh, well, I, I was invited by a team, Third Wave Volunteers is a team that's uh, going in there to, to organize this whole thing. And when I found out the mission that there were 23 special needs orphans who'd already been adopted by U.S. families, but they were in need of extrication, uh, really was right up my alley. Uh, I do search and rescue with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Uh, being a pediatrician, obviously, was, uh, was focal to my being a part of the team. Uh, what we didn't expect was the challenge it would be to get them back. Uh, obviously, being war, war is extremely unpredictable. And these children were all over the country, uh, including places like Kiev and near Odessa. Uh, so that ended up being the elusive part, is being able to safely get these children out and moved. Um, in fact, it's still an ongoing process. Um, you know, unfortunately, safe corridors would open and close for our team inside the Ukraine, and uh, it often closed before we were able to get to them, or else the children were also on the move, trying to stay safe, going to underground areas, uh, losing cell phone contact. So that made it much more challenging than we ever expected. And how many have you been able to get out and how many remain? And I mean, like you said, some of this is just areas where you just can't even get into. So it's, it's you know, they're there, but how frustrating to, to not be able to, to get in and reach them. Yeah, extremely frustrating. And so there's been a couple that have been uh, have been obtained, but they still haven't made it out yet. So we're still looking to get all of those children out. Uh, most of our team ended up turning into more of a humanitarian mission, working at, at the border as we were waiting for those kids to get out. Uh, but we ended up just really working with the refugees and myself in particular with the children as they came across the border, uh, all the refugees. So the children, uh, they don't have uh, parents. Is that right? Correct. They're, they're at orphanages. Special needs children are at orphanages. Um, and so they don't have parents there now, uh, but they've been adopted by U.S. families. OK. And so once they come to U.S. soil, what's the procedure then? What happens? Uh, they are U.S. citizens. They have all the paperwork done. It's just a matter of getting them out and getting them to their U.S. families. Okay. How much hope do you hold that these pathways are going to stay open long enough? And, and some of them are, and some of them aren't, as as you well know, uh, yeah. open long enough to, to get to get these kids. And I guess, you know, they've got somebody with them, right? Because there's, there's somebody there that's your point of contact that's, that's working just as hard as you are, I'd imagine. Correct. Yeah. So um, I would say I don't hold out hope that we'll get all of them. Um, there's always that possibility. And again, I'll see it depends on 
how things go with, with the war itself in terms of what opens up and what stays closed. Um, some of them we just don't know. Some of them, they're, most of them are in very poor health. Um, you know, some might have seizure disorders, um, malnutrition, uh, hydrocephalus. So without proper care and medications, which many of that has been cut off, we don't know what kind of shape they'll be in or, or how they will be surviving. Okay, so when they get to the U.S. Uh, before they're united with their uh, mm-hmm. American families, they need some of them need extensive medical care. Exactly. Yeah. So we've actually partnered uh, with a a medical transport uh, plane that would take them to North Carolina, where at uh, UNC Hospital is prepared to accept the children and take them in and provide care. And then once they're stabilized, then they can go home with their families. When you said this turned into more of a medical kind of supply drop, because that's what you could do in the moment, what was that like? And, you know, we've seen some of the the images, a train full of, of refugees comes, and once they're out, people who volunteers, they fill it up with as much as they can to, to send it back. Yeah, for our standpoint, we were on the Romanian border, which was not as overloaded as Poland is. Uh, on that border, families would, well, typically mother and children would come in, and, you know, we were dealing with temperatures about 15 degrees. So it was extremely cold and there were active snowstorms while we were there going on. So these people are coming in, they're freezing, they're scared. They're incredibly sad because they just left their husband or father. So a lot of it is, you know, psychological stress and trauma that they're under. And first things first is just warming them up, getting into a tent, getting hot tea and and warm soup, um, getting blankets around them, getting them warmed up and then many times the mother would have to go figure out, okay, where do I want to go from here? You have a choice. Am I going to Italy, Germany, staying in Romania, going to Hungary? They would basically get to pick. Where do I want to go next? And you'd put up, we'd get them plugged into a bus. But until that happened, as mom was being busy, I would basically take, take the kids and uh, just have a moment with them, whether it was playing peekaboo or playing Legos or a video game on my phone. Let them be a kid for 10, 15, 20 minutes while this stress is going on. And, and there was one little girl I was playing with that, uh, we were playing peekaboo and she was just laughing so hard. And to hear that child's laughter fill up this refugee tent was just, you know, a bonus for everybody. We, we were just all filled with joy just to hear a child's laughter. Dr. John Rodarte, a pediatrician, Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. Uh, we thank you for the work you're doing, doctor. The inability to develop relationships with women could be fueling a growing terror threat among men here in the U.S., A new study from the Secret Service's National Threat Assessment Center warns of men known as incels. They refer to themselves as anti-feminists or involuntary celibates. Incels, the study finds since 2014, attacks inspired by the incel movement have left dozens dead in the U.S. and Canada. Alex DeBranco, executive director of the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism, studies this uh, incel movement. Alex, thanks for being here. So this is something that has been growing over the last uh, few years? Yes, it has, in particular since the attack in Santa Barbara in 2014, which the misogynist incel community um, references as, you know, a hero or an act of martyrdom. Um, A number of uh, attempted and successful killings since then have referenced the 2014 perpetrator and clearly are influenced by this overall ideology. Okay, uh, but why now? You mentioned one incident, of course, a tragic incident in Santa Barbara, but there must be other reasons, I would suspect, why we're seeing this trend, if it is a trend now. 
Yeah, so one of the things that I think the report does well is that it recognizes that even though there's been a lot of attention to misogynist incels in particular, there are multiple forms of misogynist and male supremacist violence. Um, And so I think that we have actually seen in general um, that the first sort of mass um, violence around anti-feminist ideology was in Montreal in 1989. Um, And there have been then other um, increasing anti-feminist movements and misogynist male supremacist coordinated movements since then, as there have been more successes for the advance of women's rights and gender equality. And so as these um, movements of mostly cisgender men Um, begin to lose a lot of the privileges that they have had traditionally under a patriarchal system. Um, They have turned to things like violence um, in order to uh, re-entrench and bring attention to um, their feelings of injustice. And then it's well known that when um, you pay attention to and glorify, um, you know, a perpetrator of violence that you then also frequently get copycats or people influenced. And so we have seen in so many of these attacks since 2014 references back to um, that initial manifesto, which was about 100 pages long, very influential in the movement. And I think generally since 2016, our former president was very popular with a lot of the online misogynist groups, groups like the so-called Red Pill Um, that we've just overall seen a ramping up in these kinds of communities and ideologies and the legitimacy that they also got um, in the the last presidential period. Does does a lot of this go against that idea of, you know, some lonely, angry guy who takes out his anger in the worst ways possible? If these men are getting together online and saying all these things, you know, all these things are women's faults or or we're proud anti-feminists or they're pointing back to these attacks as, you know, big moments for, for their thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely are. They, um, you know, in typical sort of social movement fashion, they envision themselves as countering injustice. And so they actually have an ideology. In 2018, we had two attacks, the yoga studio um, Tallahassee shooting here in the United States, which the report looked at, but also a few months prior to that, the Toronto van attack um, that killed 10 people and the perpetrator for which was um, uh, sentenced by Canadian courts, uh, I believe last year. And so we had two attacks in that year that both referenced in materials left behind by the perpetrators that 2014 um, killing and also other forms of believing that their lack of desired access to women's bodies was a form of injustice. And a lot of the ideologies, the things that they talk about are things that make it very clear that they don't think that women should have agency. They don't believe in consent. They don't respect women's autonomy. They don't really see them as humans and people worthy of empathy, that they have not learned that. They've learned to objectify and dehumanize that women are objects who are not serving the purpose that they are supposed to. We've mentioned U.S. and and Canada. Is there any evidence that 
this violence from incels uh, is also in in other countries. For example, Western European countries are as, if not more, patriarchal in many ways than the U.S. Yeah, so misogynist incels specifically um, mostly influence countries that are primarily English language speaking with the Internet, a lot of transnational distribution um, of ideas. So language becomes the barrier. So this specific movement, mostly United States, Canada um, and UK so far, where we've seen acts of violence. But again, the important part of the report was that it recognized that both here in the United States and elsewhere, we've had other forms of misogynist and male supremacist violence. So while misogynist incels are one version that is specific to English language speaking countries in the West. There are other forms of male supremacist and misogynist violence um, in other countries globally as well. And so it's easier to recognize the kind of issues that exist if we have a broader frame and don't have the um, kind of focus just on misogynist incels that I think has tended to occur over the past few years as they've gained more awareness in the public eye. Alex Debrenko, Executive Director, the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism, studies this incel movement. Alex, thanks for talking to us. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Lots of people have had their two Pfizer's or Moderna vaccine shots. Then they've had their booster. Now is a uh, fourth one needed. When the Washington Post and others are now saying that Pfizer is going to ask the FDA to approve a second booster shot of its COVID vaccine for people 65 and older. Now, this is not without precedent. Older people in Israel were allowed and are being allowed to get a second booster. Back with us is Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine and infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University's School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being back with us again. So, Good afternoon, guys. Good to be with you. So uh, this fourth booster, uh, reading what I read this morning, because it's not sort of official from Pfizer, it's all this leaked stuff that Pfizer, I presume, is is leaking to the media, is pointing out that the third booster, well, I mean, the second booster, first booster, but the third shot, it's hard hard to keep track of all this, the third shot, first booster, apparently is doing just fine at preventing infection, uh, hospitalizations and severe illness. But the concern is that it's not doing such a great job after X number of months of preventing infection. That's where the fourth shot or second booster would come in. If that's the case, though, are we back to to kind of chasing a vaccine that's going to stop people from getting infected, which I never thought was the goal of these vaccines? Well, let me say first, I don't think we should be making uh, vaccine policy by news release. I agree. (laughs) I totally agree. But uh, having in our quivers or on the shelf ready to go a a second booster, if needed, would be a great thing. We'd like a security blanket. But at the moment, as you say, the vaccine is very good at keeping us out of the hospital. That's the major public health intent. Avoiding cold-like symptoms is not a major issue. We can tolerate that. We do that with regular colds. So at the moment, most of us in public health don't think there's an immediate need for that second booster, fourth dose. But nice to have it in the event we need something like that 
down the road. So that's, you know, the public health perspective. What about just the straight public perspective? Do you think there's just too much pressure that, that COVID has gotten to so many people, you know, in the mind that, that they don't even want the infection? Mm. I don't even want to get Omicron at all. I know my booster's waning, so now I really want my fourth shot. Because, I mean, there's people out there who've gotten them already and they're not supposed to. Just because they're they're so petrified of even getting a any kind of infection. Because they think it's going to probably, whatever my luck it is, it's going to turn out to be the worst for me possible. Well, hear you very well. And there are generally two folks out there. Uh, the one group of people don't want anything more to do with vaccines. They have vaccine fatigue. Then we have another group of people who are very attentive to these issues and would like maximum protection. I think uh, the wise road is somewhere in the middle. We certainly already offer that second booster to people who are immune compromised. They get four doses because their immune systems need a little extra push in order to give them protection. At the moment, the general public, I don't think it's on the agenda in the near term, but good to have that vaccine on the shelf if we need it. So Pfizer, keep doing the studies. We'd like to have it ready if we need it. Now, of course, they're saying, and again, when I say they're saying, these are all press leaks, which is another issue that we could talk about. Uh, But they're saying, you know, not just for immunocompromised, but anybody 65 and older, But that also seems to be, I don't know, kind of a specious uh, argument because there are people who are 65 and older who are in great health and there are people who are 25 and older who are in terrible health. Well, at the moment, I think we have it just right. The recommendations are for people who are genuinely immune compromised and they know who they are because they are attended by physicians and know about their illness and the medications they take, they should get four doses of the vaccine. The rest of us at the moment, we only need three, two initial doses and one booster. If protection does wane substantially down the road, we may need that extra shot, but not at the moment. I was going to say, could this also be just a totally different calculus once we get through another six months and then maybe we know what we're up against come winter? Exactly. And that's what we're looking for. One of the things we're studying is the duration of protection, both from the vaccines and from the natural infection. We don't know that yet. So that's on the agenda. We're studying that. And come next fall, this coming fall, we'll come out and remind everybody to get their flu shots. But also, we will have a recommendation about whether we do need whether we do need another COVID booster. So let's circle back to that thing about about medicine by news release, uh, because <laughs> I, I, are you concerned that the FDA and maybe the CDC, maybe both, uh, will end up just being so badgered by this constant drip of and that's been the case, unfortunately, I think all along with with uh, the pandemic is we get a lot of stuff before it's published, a lot of stuff before uh, experts such as yourself have a chance to really look over the day. Do we get these press releases or worse, leaks from anonymous sources, presumably from the companies involved? uh, So it ends up on the Washington Post front page or the New York Times. Do you worry that that government agencies are just going to say, oh, the heck with it. There's so much pressure now. Let's just approve it. Actually, we have two wonderful safeguards. 
they are external expert advisory committees, one to the FDA and the other to the CDC. And they look at all the data very, very critically and give their advice to the agencies. I haven't been involved with the FDA committee. I am, have been for a long time involved with the CDC committee. They do not yield to pressure. They look at the data and they're very rigorous. Dr. William Schaffner, Professor of Preventative Medicine, Infectious Diseases, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. Doctors and scientists have been trying to, for close to now 40 years, to find a vaccine or cure for HIV. Treatments have come a long way since the early 1980s, as contracting the virus is no longer considered a death sentence. But there's been no luck for a vaccine, but maybe that will now change. The National Institutes of Health has started a phase one clinical trial of three experimental messenger RNA vaccine, vaccines for HIV. With us to uh, help explain all of this is Dr. Jesse Clark, principal investigator, helping lead the study and professor at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So be, before we get into an explanation of, of the trial and, and what you hope to accomplish with it, can we answer the question that I'm sure is now in people's minds that we seem to have developed uh, uh, very good vaccines relatively quickly, uh, not as quick as I think people think, but relatively quickly to deal with COVID. Why has that not been the case with HIV? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it really has to do with the fact that developing a vaccine for COVID-19 was a fairly simple um, scientific exercise. Um, COVID-19, you had a virus with a spike protein on its surface, which was fairly well conserved and consistent across strains. So it was really just a matter of knowing, identifying that target and then developing a vaccine that could fight against it. Uh, with HIV, however, what you have is a target that's constantly moving or shifting and mutating. Um, so you, you can't nail down the target. You can't, it's been very difficult to develop an appropriate vaccine for it uh, because of this, because you have this constantly shifting um, target that you're looking for. So what can we learn from the COVID vaccines and the mechanisms there that maybe we can apply to HIV and are, are being applied in this trial? Yeah, so one of the things that we're doing here is using the mRNA technology that was used to develop the COVID vaccines because we found it was both highly effective um, and also something that can be modified fairly easily. Um, by changing the genetic code, you can change the, the focus of your vaccine um, as opposed to traditional protein-based vaccines, which are much more uh, difficult to modify. So that's what we're doing in this trial is we're testing out the safety and uh, immune response of three different types of mRNA vaccine uh, against HIV. We're not testing an actual HIV vaccine in this trial, but we're testing a platform that's going to help us develop a future HIV vaccine. With this mRNA technology, what we hopefully will be able to do in the future um, is to easily insert and modify or change the genetic code of the vaccine um, so that we can easily test and scale up new products in the future, both uh, faster and cheaper than we have in the past with traditional vaccines. So what is actually involved in the trial? Um, so the trial is testing the safety and immunogenicity or immune response of three different types of mRNA vaccine uh, in human subjects. It's primarily a safety study. So we're, uh, obviously safety is first. So the main thing that we're looking for here is to make sure that they are safe to give to humans and uh, don't cause any significant adverse effects. And then we're also looking to see if they can enlist an appropriate immune response, if they can produce antibodies um, which ultimately would be targeted against HIV. Are you still going after a, a, a spike protein that we've learned so much about because of COVID, you know, the way that that grasps onto us and then eventually gets in? Uh, yeah, it would be great if HIV had something like a spike protein that they could target. But unfortunately, um, the surface of HIV has, 
things like the spike protein. Uh, but as I was saying before, they're constantly shifting and constantly mutating. So um, there's not, it's, the problem has been identifying something like the spike protein to go after in developing a vaccine. I, I want to make sure that I'm clear about something that you said uh, just before. So with these three vaccines, you're testing the safety of the messenger RNA platform, is that it? But but are, you're, yeah. not, you're not looking to see whether any of these three can prevent HIV infection, is that right? No, we're not testing a product for uh, an HIV vaccine yet. We're really testing the platform uh, from, on which we will develop future candidates for HIV vaccines um, if successful. And this is likely to be um, the structure on which future vaccine candidates are tested and applied in the future. But for now, we're just testing the structure itself. When we talk about the future, how far away is the future? Uh, who knows? When they first announced the search, for, the search for an HIV vaccine, they thought it would be in two years, and that was 40 years ago. Uh, so uh, I'm hopeful that we'll have it within the next 10, 15 years, but uh, is anybody to guess? 10 or 15 years. Uh, who are you recruiting for these uh, studies if they haven't been already? And, and how does somebody who might be interested get involved? So the study is being done at sites across the U.S. There's one site um, at UCLA. Uh, we're recruiting people who have low risk uh, with other medical problems. Um, who are willing to participate in a, a vaccine trial. People are going to hear the 10 or 15 years and say, oh, it's even, I mean, it's been 40 now, 10 or 15, it's going to take forever to get this thing. But how much more excited are you today than you were maybe a few years ago, given how much closer we continually get, even if it is at a, a you know, a slow pace? I'm much more excited now, especially um, I was part of the COVID-19 vaccine trials and so. The speed at which that happened, the speed at which we were able to develop an effective vaccine has given me a lot of hope, especially for this mRNA technology, which has really revolutionized um, the, the vaccine field and hopefully will provide the, the key for the future. Dr. Jesse Clark, principal investigator helping lead this study, professor at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. Dr. Clark, thanks. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.